The Bob Murphy Show, episode 277. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome back to the bob murphy show finally we are ending the long hiatus of not having guests on. Today, I'm going to be joined by Larry Ludlow or Lawrence Ludlow. And we're going to be talking about Romans 13, everything you wanted to know and more. Let me just read from his bio. Lawrence M. Ludlow, semi-retired, provides marketing and business writing services. He holds an MA in Medieval Studies from the University of Toronto's Center for Medieval Studies slash Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies. He volunteers at Detroit's Catholic Cathedral, hosts book clubs, and makes presentations on manuscripts, early printing, and art history. So Lawrence, or Larry, reached out to me and was talking, you know, when I was doing some stuff on Romans 13 a while ago, and then I wanted him to have him on to talk about his perspective, and things got crazy on my end. So I'm glad, though, that he stuck with it, and we are now able to bring you this very interesting perspective. It was a great conversation. I think regardless of your own views on Romans 13 and the possible implications for Christian libertarians. I think you'll be enlightened by what we say. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Larry Ludlow. Well, Larry, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Thanks, Bob. It's a real pleasure to be here. So you are the first interviewee that's come back since my long hiatus. So (laughs) you and there's a couple other people that I was about to interview and then I had my long issues going on where my schedule was pretty hectic. And so I'm glad to finally get you on. Well, as your first guest, I hope I don't curse your future broadcast. Yes, right. I know. Yeah. People will be like, geez, now we see why Bob was just doing solo episodes. So yeah, we're talking about Romans 13. I have already said it in the introduction that people would have heard by this point as they're listening to this episode after it's polished. So we will jump right in. I think, let me read Romans 13 just so everybody is reminded as to what the issue is. And I'm using the the New American Standard Bible's translation. So, and pertinently, the title given to this chapter in the in the version is called "Be Subject to Government." So, it reminds everybody why do Christian libertarians talk about this particular chapter so much? And here's what it says: Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil." Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Pay to all what is due to them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, quote, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let's rid ourselves of the deeds of darkness and put on the arbor of light. Let's behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and debauchery not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Okay, so obviously the first two sections are the ones that people focus on a lot. Last thing I'll say as a preamble, Larry, before we sort of let you take over the show, is just to prep for this, I listened to R.C. Sproul and what does he say about this? And so people who know him, he's very, he's got a very right-wing 
political framework. He's not naive. He understands that politicians lie all the time. He doesn't like what they do with our tax dollars and stuff like that. So it's not that he's dewy-eyed and so forth. But he has a pretty standard interpretation of this is that, yep, the political rulers and authorities on earth, the heads of state are put there by God. And his view is, unless they tell you to do something that's directly in contradiction to what God's telling you, then you have to do it as a good Christian. That's your duty, just like the Christians need to be the most obedient and like non-difficult subjects in the kingdom and that everybody would know that, even the people who hate their guts and think that they believe some crazy myths and that the only time a Christian is supposed to disobey what the authorities say is they tell you worship Caesar as God or something like that or go kill somebody who's innocent, that kind of thing. But other than that, do what they say. So that's pretty standard interpretation from him. So with that preamble now, how do you want to proceed on this? Because I know you have a lot of thoughts on Romans 13. Yeah, I happen to have read Gerard Casey's book, Freedom's Progress, uh, History of Political Thought. One of my reading groups had been reading Casey, and I've also been, for years, been studying a little bit of Jacques Ellul. He's a theologian who has written on Christian anarchy at times, and readers might be interested in looking into some of his works. But this came up again when you had a podcast on explaining free markets to Christians. And so in some of the notes, I posted some of what Casey said and what came out of my reading group. And I also have a background from the Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies in Toronto, where I studied as a historian. And at the time, I passed my PhD Latin test there during my master's year. So I'm not unfamiliar with how to use some of these ancient languages, even though I don't have formal Greek training. But I do know that both of those languages have great similarities. The Koine Greek in the Bible is very simple, and so is the Latin translation of Jerome. And I'll get into why I triangulate on Latin later. But first, I should mention what Gerard Casey brought up. He pointed out in his book in the chapters where he addresses early Christianity, he points out that there's always been a problem with rulership in the Bible. Even from the time of Samuel, if people will remember in the first book of Samuel, chapter 8, verse 6, the Israelis ask for a king. And this is one of the most famous passages where people are warned about the idea of rulership because under that time, the Israelis were functioning under the judges. And the text there actually says, when they ask for a king from Samuel before he dies, he says, the matter was evil in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prays to the Lord, and then he warns them about what a king will bring. Mm -hmm. He says, this practice of a king will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them in his chariots for himself and his horsemen and run them before his chariots. He will appoint commanders. He will take the fruit of your fields. He will take your daughters and on and on and on. And so he really makes quite the case against kingship. And we see this fulfilled later on in 2 Samuel in chapter 11, when we see that the very best king of the Israeli people, David, what does he do? He goes after Bathsheba, gets his husband to visit him and says, you're going to go out into the heat of the battle in the worst part of the battle, which of course kills Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So if this is the best that government can give us in kingship, it's not that good. Mm -hmm. And this theme goes throughout the Bible, as Casey points out. And even when in the New Testament, when Christ is asked to comment on whether you pay the tax with the denarius, he says, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's after asking to see the coin. Casey points out that this is really a very elliptical response. It's not very direct. It's even a little bit tricky. As it comes out, even during the crucifixion, we see that one of the accusations against Christ was that he was preaching not to pay taxes. And this was not contravened by him <laughs> in the text of just preceding the crucifixion. So there are problems with this. And I'm not saying that this is a definitive proof that God doesn't institute authorities because I can't speak for God. But 
there is every reason to believe that Romans chapter 13 is not open only to that interpretation. And in fact, that you can completely sidestep that interpretation. And so that's what I'm going to try to explain over here and why we might say that. Let me just give a little context for people on the, because yeah, the render under Caesars, I think that's a critical one. And just to set people up again, the religious authorities were trying to trap Jesus. They thought they had a thing where, like they didn't care what his answer was. They just wanted to trap him. And so they said, Rabbi, is it lawful to pay taxes to Rome? And thinking if he says yes, then the people, the Jewish people aren't going to like, oh, he's not actually our liberator. He's not this revolutionary because he's telling us to pay taxes to this conquering army. So what a sellout. But if he says no, then they can go to the Romans and say, hey, this guy's saying don't pay taxes, go take care of him. So they thought either way, it doesn't matter what he answers. And so, yeah, he then very cleverly says, well, hold up the coin. Whose image is that? And they say, oh, Caesar's. And this is, okay, so give to Caesar's what are Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And so with that answer, who could object to that? Like it's almost a tautology. Yeah, if give it to Caesar what is his and give to God what's God, no one could object to that. It sounds like he's saying pay your taxes, but actually he didn't say that. It's not clear what he means. And with the whole, pick the coin of it's kind of like a diversion. It kind of sets you up. You know, it's a masterful answer. It's kind of like, well, yeah, if God became man, that's how he would deal with that situation. Like just brilliant and walks away. And everyone's kind of just dumbfounded. Like, wait, what just happened? We thought we had him trapped and now he's just walking away. We don't even know what to do. We look like idiots. So yeah, that clearly was not an unambiguous command from Jesus to pay your taxes every April 15th. It was a very ingenious way for him to get out of that trap they were trying to set for him. Yeah, it's also a little bit funny because you could even say, gee, if I have a box of Quaker oats in my pantry and it has the picture of the Quaker on it, and somebody said, hey, Larry, who owns that box of Quaker oats? And I pointed to the picture of the Quaker. I go, I guess he does. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And by the way, there's a great essay by Jeff Barr on the Mises site called Render Unto Caesar. It's a fantastic explanation of the meaning of Jesus' response and what the coin picture would have meant at the time. I can't get into it here because it's a long argument, but I really, it's one of the best things I've seen written on it. It's just wonderful as far as the culture there. But yeah, so yeah, getting back into the, argument here. So at St. Paul's time, Casey also points out that there's nothing explicit in Romans 12 and 13 to support the claim that Paul is blessing authority. In fact, he talks about the outrages of secular authorities, the martyrdom of Paul himself in Rome, of Peter crucified upside down in Rome, the killing of John the Baptist, the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem and the crucifixion of Jesus himself, and even points out that I think Revelation 13, we see that the government has the mark of the beast. So government does not get a pass in the New Testament. I'm not going to get into some of the weedy things like how much of the text in Romans 13 might have been interpolated there or salted by Paul to just ward off the idea that, yeah, we're too dangerous to be here that Paul might have created this section just to allay the fears of Romans who think that they're up to no good. So I'm not going to get into that. I'd really like to just step right into the text itself. And what I'd like to do is point out that the translation that Bob just read in our standard translation as R.C. Sproul has, I think that a lot of that interpretation came out as a result of Christianity is becoming declared legal by Constantine with the Edict of Milan in 313. Because after that point, the church felt safe with authorities. They had to cooperate them. These hierarchies worked together. Even though they're competing centers of powers throughout the Middle Ages, there's kind of a modus operandi they have amongst themselves. So I think that if Christianity were illegal again, I think we would see a change in the interpretation of Romans 13. So just to move things along, unless, Bob, did you have anything that you wanted to add there? Well, so yeah, I do like your approach about, because you're right, I've heard interpretations too, saying that maybe Paul was being a little bit sly, especially like he's in and out of prison. Like he's not stupid. He understands full well that the authorities can lock Christians up. And so, and that 
they're spreading rumors about all oh, these Christians are doing crazy. So they're drinking blood and they're doing all kinds of nutty stuff, setting fires. My timing's a little off here, but you know what I'm saying? That maybe he wanted to make it look to say, hey, hey, we're unobjectionable. We're not a threat to any of the political authorities. And so not that he wrote something that he didn't believe, but that maybe he was being a bit coy and making it look like he was endorsing the secular rulers, what really he wasn't. But I like how you're just said, let's not, because unfortunately, if you go down that path, then you can kind of say anything you want. And it's like any kind of a text that's inconvenient to your world, you can say, oh, well, he didn't really mean that. So, yeah. So what I'd like to do, Bob, and for your listeners, I'd like to look at this in two ways. First, I'd like to talk about the manuscript tradition, the, the physical transmission of these texts and how they lead to an interpretation that's less forgiving of authorities. And second, I'd like to use a comparison of the Greek as it was written in the New Testament with St. Jerome's Latin translation of it in the Vulgate text. And the reason I'd say this is because somebody could say, hey, the Latin is just another translation from the Greek, just like English. But the reason I will do this is because I'll show Jerome was the foremost linguist of his time among Christian writers. He lived in Bethlehem, had the interpretation resources of the Jewish community there and the rabbis there. He was expert in Greek and Latin, and he was trained in Hebrew by these same rabbis. So he's trilingual there in all of these tongues. And even better, he's got access to fabulous manuscripts. Remember, Jerome was doing his translation of the Bible in the late 300s. He actually had a copy of the Old Testament manuscript that Origen of Alexandria had in the mid-200s. It's called the Hexapla because it had six columns of Greek and Hebrew text. So he probably had access to New Testament texts that were really of very reliable accuracy. He possibly had texts that were from the third or second century. And this is important because these texts go wild when they get transmitted out there. You don't know who's copying what or for what purpose and in what pieces they are. And I'm not going to get into it because we don't have time on the broadcast, but it can be a real shooting match. So I'd like to first, before I get into Jerome, just to talk about these physical documents. Before the ninth century, before the time of Charlemagne, virtually all Latin and Greek manuscripts do not have word separation at all. It is just one continuous line of text. And just to show people who are watching, this is a typical text from that period. This is, I think, a sixth century text of the Codex Bezae, which is at Cambridge. It's just constant lettering, no word spaces. You really had to know your texts. And there can be problems at times as a result. The idea of spacing out words never came about until after the ninth century. And even more so, and more important than this, is there were no chapter titles at all. This whole idea of dividing books into chapters came about in the early 13th century, like around 1225, and it was by Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, did this in the first decade of the 13th century. So for 1,200 years, you don't have any of this chapter division. Occasionally, you might see some sections in Greek manuscripts where they'll break up topical sections, but by and large, no. And the idea of the separation into verses, that even came later. That was a printer in Paris in 1555, Robert Estienne, who did that. So what we're talking about in these texts are just these continuous codex books. Before that, it was papyrus, but they don't have word division. They don't have chapter division. You maybe sometimes just have a book, the book of John, or a collection of gospels. You rarely have a complete Bible in a text. We only have a few of those in those very giant manuscripts they have, such as the Codex Vaticanus in the Vatican, the Codex Sinaiticus, which is another one, and that Codex Alexandrinus. Some of those are in St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai, the others in the British Museum. So these are the very few giant Bible texts. So the books, even if you even look at these old texts, they don't even 
make a break between two different books of the Bible. They'll just mm -hmm. write the next column. So how does this affect us in our Romans 13? What I'm saying is the book of Romans between chapter 12 and chapter 13 would actually have no division. And this is really important. Why? Because if you take a look at what Romans 12 is about, it's kind of like a beatitude of how you're supposed to behave around each other. It's talking about your spirit-influenced behavior as Christians toward each other and to those outside of the community. So if you go through the first several verses, it's like, don't be conformed to the world. Then we have all these specializations and functions and gifts among the different members of the body of Christ that we all have a different one. And key to this whole conversation is verse 6, he's saying, hey, if you have the gift of prophecy, prophesy in proportion to your faith. And when he gets to verse 7, he said, if your gift is in service and the act of serving, then in servicing. The word he uses there in Greek is diakonian, well, the phrase is diakonian and idiakonia. If you're a minister, you minister. This word diakonian is the word from which we get our word deacon in English. So this is his word that's translated as leadership in most of our Bibles, or it's translated as being a minister. And you'll see the same word appears in Romans 13 when he talks about these authorities being ministers. So it's very possible that, especially since Romans 12 and 13 weren't even identified as separate chapters, that he's simply talking more in depth about how to listen to and pay attention to your leaders. So I'd like us to consider Romans 13 as a continuing idea of Romans 12 as being obedient to your spiritual leaders in all of these moral activities, how you treat each other and how you treat your fellow man outside of the community. Regardless of whether you agree with what Larry's going to say, folks, if you just read Romans 13, it does seem pretty clear cut and you can see why like R.C. Sproul would you know, go like, he's not saying nutty stuff. It's like, yeah, that seems like it's prima facie what the text is saying. But if you read it in Romans 12 and 13 together, that interpretation just sounds weird. It would sound like Paul like, had one train of thought and then turned on a dime and said almost the opposite because here's how Romans 12 ends. It says, starting from verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So it would be odd if he's saying all that to Christians and then turns on a dime and says, and so that's why if someone robs a bank, chop his hands off, have the police grab the guy, throw him in a cage. And then if, you know, somebody murders somebody, you grab him and you kill him because that's, you know, humans clearly have to be instruments of God's justice. Or at the very least, maybe the only way to reconcile that would be to say Christians are not allowed to go into government service. Christians can't be police officers or judges, certainly not executioners because how could you obey simultaneously Romans 12 and 13, right? So it just, it's a, if Romans 13 means what it seems to on the surface, then it seems hard to reconcile with 12 unless like I say, if he means, oh, Christians can never allow to serve with the state. Anyway, I'll stop there. Blair, are you okay with what I just said? Yeah, yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. Now that we kind of know the setup of how these texts would have just flowed one into the other and be seen as a continuation. And by the way, I noticed and I sent a document to Bob, I went through all the history of some of the English translations. Just to, as a note, I took a look at how statist, I guess you could say these were over time. And I noticed that the oldest translations, which are basically using the same Greek text, I'm not going to get into the difference between the changing versions of Greek text that we use. We just don't have time. There was one that Erasmus made originally in the 1500s, which is called the Textus Receptus. 
That was used as a basis for several years. And then in the mid-1800s, Westcott and Hort got involved. And then we have this Nestle Alland one that was published out in like 1896 or something, or 1881, I forget, which is now the current one, which is really just based on comparisons. But the point is, the Greek text didn't change in this section of Paul at all through much of this at all. I looked at them and I compared them in Greek word for word. There are two or three changes that in there, but they're not even changes. They're just additional words that are almost positives in the sentence. They have zero impact on this. The other thing we need to know about the language we're using here in the translation to English, and this is where the futzing around comes in. Greek and Latin are both very compressed languages. Like the Greek dictionary at the time would have had maybe 60,000 words at most, and likewise Latin, 20 to 40,000. But it's even more reduced word set in the New Testament. If you take a look in any concordance or lexicon of the New Testament, we're only talking about 5,400 to 5,600 words. This is not at all like English, which has a million and a half words. So what's going to happen when you translate it to English? Well, a Latin or Greek word may require five or six different translations into English, and this is where the mischief can occur. So let's always keep that in mind as we go through the text of Romans 13. So, and you'll notice, by the way, that if you have ever seen a Tyndale Bible, a Geneva Bible, a Bishop's Bible, if you're a Catholic, the old Rand Douay or Douay Rand, however you want to say it, Bible, or the King James Version, or the American Standard Version of 1901, all the way up through that, they translate that in a less statist way. The more recent ones, where they're more comfortable with authorities, well, they translate it more in terms of acceptance of authority. And I won't go into it any more than that because I don't know what the editors of those books really would have meant by their changes. So can you give us an example, do you know off the top of your head, can you give an sure. example of what you mean? Like originally it said this, but then now it says this and you yeah. can see how it's more statist. Sure. I'll take a look at the text of Romans 13, one here in the King James originally in that first verse of Romans 13, the King James in 1611 reads, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. It's not every person. Mm -hmm. They're not talking about people or citizens. They're literally talking about our spiritual souls. And in Latin, Jerome translated it as anima. It is not the word for man, which is homo. It's not. And in mm -hmm. Greek, it's the same darn thing in Greek. Can I stop you there, Larry? It's yeah. really interesting you're saying that because R.C. Sproul, when he was... That's how he opened. And he's did not want to say soul here. They mean person. Like he just took it as to mean like, oh, wow, I went to the baseball game and not, you know, or the teacher said, hey, who put this whoopee cushion on my chair? And not a soul said a word. Like sometimes old timey language, you use soul just to mean person for emphasis. Yeah. But you're saying, no, that wasn't something cute. Like they literally were distinguishing. And also too, there's a huge difference in interpretation in English to say, let every person be subject to the authorities versus let every soul be subject to the higher powers. Yeah. Like the second one clearly sounds like you're talking about spiritual realm. Especially if you're reading Romans 12 just before right, this. Right, right. I mean, mm -hmm. so let's keep this in mind. And by the way, the word soul is used not only in the Tyndale version, but in the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Douay-Rain, the King James, American Standard Version 1901. It's, I mean, and it also occurs later on in the third text of Romans 13, 3. We have some of them say rulers and so forth. Some of them say princes, which is the word that Jerome used. And some of them just say magistrates. But these words, magistrates, in Paul's time under Jerome, he uses magistrium. He's talking about people who are servants. The word he uses, these ministerium people, these are not high-saluting office holders. A ministerium is like an attendant that you have. These are step-and-fetches that mm -hmm. serve you in this community. And these are literally people who are serving. These are not high-saluting titles for him. So those are some of the more obvious cases as far as that. And they use these as ministers of God. These are servants of God. And frankly, even in the history of the Catholic Church, popes were referred to as 
the servants of the servants of God. Although Paul would not have used that because we didn't really have popes at his time. But there's a word tradition that we're talking about here. So just first, right off the bat, we're talking about souls. And even better, the translation that Bob read earlier, the straight one from the New American Standard, calls them governing authorities. Well, in the Greek, it's actually higher powers. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in there about governing specifically. We're talking about hires, higher ranking. And this, you can even translate higher as sublime, heavenly, beyond us. The word is exousis in Latin or, and, and hyper exousis. So these are the higher powers. And in Jerome, in his translation, calls them the postestatibus subliminaribus, subliminaribus. So what that means is the powers that are the most sublime, the higher powers, and I always make a joke about this. I mean, say what you will, but nobody's going to say that Biden or Trump are sublime higher powers. Sorry, right, it's not right. going to happen. So I'd like to just hit that right there. And oh, even further in that verse one, the word where they're instituted by God or because they say, for there's no power except by God and those that exist are established. Well, the word used there also means ordained and instituted and ordinated by God. So one could translate that sentence in a completely different way and say simply, hey, let every soul in subjection to the higher powers, for there is no power except from God and those that exist are ordained by God. You could, again, if you're reading Romans 12, we're talking again, this is the same deacons and ministers he was talking about Romans 12. To me, the only the first seven verses really matter here. Mm-hmm. We don't have to go into detail on all of them. But in verse two, we don't have to change much there. Therefore, he resists the power or the exousia. Again, even the word authority is it so much there that exousios in Greek, yeah, it's authority, but it, Jerome translated as a power and it's a higher power. So it goes, therefore, who resists the power has opposed the ordinance of God. And it's actually like the ordination of God. And these are almost religious terms, ordination later on. I mean, I don't want to be anachronistic here by pulling a later religious meaning in, but you don't have to interpret it as a secular authority. Oh, and even better in verse two, he says, and those who oppose it will receive condemnation. This is again, a religious word. The word in Latin that Jerome used was damnationem, damnation. These are biblical go to hell terms. You see what I'm mm-hmm. saying? These are, these are right. spiritual sinning terms, not secular damnation. I mean, does Caesar damn you? No, he kills you. So then verses three through seven, Paul is again addressing religious obedience and he even makes analogies to other areas of your life. So let's go through these and just look at them knowing what the word history is here. So for leaders are not a cause of fear for good behavior. And the word he uses there is archontes in Greek. And Jerome translated it as the word for the foremost in order, principes. I know our word prince comes from that, but that's really the primary meaning of the princeps is not the prince. It's the principal word. It's an ordinal word, the first. It's more that, yeah, later on they became princes, but it's really the highest and first command. And what's the command that we have from Christ is that the first of all things is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbors yourself. So we're talking about these principal commands for these leaders. So for these principal ones or ministers are not a cause of fear for good works or good behavior, but for evil. If you want no fear of the power, well, then do what is good and you will have praise from the same. So again, Think of this Arcontes word as the first in rank, the chief magistrate, 
or the foremost and first. And in Latin, it's even the most eminent and noble. And Casey brought up a great point in his book. He says, that word is used of Jewish religious leaders throughout the New Testament. And so again, Paul, the Jew from Palestine, is accustomed to talking of the synagogue. The person who he dictated to, the amanuensis to whom he probably dictated these letters, is using what Paul would have said was the common term for religious leader in the Jewish communities of that time, as Casey points out. Bob, before we move on to verse four, do you want to have any comments in there? Yeah, I mean, again, just on the face of it, like I said, the standard interpretation like that R.C. Sproul gave, it's hard to reconcile with this. Clearly, Paul knows full well it's not the case that anytime secular government officials punish someone, it's because that person did something wrong. And that as long as you do nothing wrong in an earthly sense, you're never going to get in trouble with yeah. the political authorities. Yeah. Like that's, I, you know, Paul isn't stupid. He knows that. He's was in and out of prison himself. He saw what they did to Jesus. It's not because, well, you know, if Jesus had just obeyed the secular laws, then he wouldn't have gotten put to death. That's his own fault. That's obviously not what happened in his case. So again, the straightforward interpretation of this is clearly Paul's just saying false things if you take him to mean what... So again, in fairness, it does seem like he is saying that, like, hey, just the policeman's your friend. And <laughs> if you don't, you know, hey, if you got nothing to hide, don't worry if the NSA is spying on your emails, if you got nothing to hide. Like, it, it does sound like he's saying that, but yet that he's clearly wrong. And so it's not weird for us to be thinking, wait a minute, maybe there's something behind this. It's not merely that, oh, well, it conflicts with our libertarian predisposition. And so maybe he means something else. Like, no, whether you're libertarian or not, everybody knows the state sometimes punishes innocent people, at least of the crime they punish them for. Like, everybody's fallen, that kind of thing. So, so yeah, and this goes on even further into verses four and five, which are preparing for six and seven. Paul is explaining how disobedience to spiritual authorities, those who wield the sword, which is the word of God, and that's how the word sword appears here. I've had some people argue about this. Yeah, but he's talking about the sword. This is Caesar. No, throughout the New Testament, Paul uses the word sword as the word of God. In fact, virtually every medieval manuscript that makes a pictorial of St. Paul, it's Paul holding up a sword because it's the word of God, just as Peter is always pictured holding the keys. Mm -hmm. So this was understood. The word sword is meant by, is understood at the time by everyone that we're talking about the word of God. So here in so can I four, Can I stop yeah, you on that yeah. one? Yeah, because that's something Sproul also hit. And he was, because it, it is true, right? In our time, even in a secular context, someone says like, oh yeah, the who wields the sword or whatever, like often means like, oh yeah, like the physical things that happen to you in this world, if you get on the wrong side of the law kind of thing. And he linked it back to the Garden of Eden. He was saying, you know, the first time a sword was introduced against humans was after they got banished from the garden. And then there was a fiery sword moving an alder, the cherubim had it to keep them out. So they have to stay east of Eden. So yeah, he's clearly, he thinks it's open and shut case that of course, to talk about the sword and who wields the sword, that means the political authorities on earth. But you're right. It's also obvious we know that, no, this, the word of God is clearly referred to multiple times in scripture as a sword or even a fiery sword. So that's interesting that you're, you know, just pointing yeah, that out. And in, in verse four reinforces this, he goes, because you can translate, for he is a minister or servant in the Greek word, his diakonos, again, a deacon, a deacon. I mean, so for he is indeed a minister or deacon of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For if he does not bear the sword, and the word is makairon, or translate as gladium into Latin, he's not the bearer of the sword for nothing, for he's a minister of God, an avenger. Now, this word avenger, if you look it up in Greek, it actually means a bringer outer of rightness, a bringer outer of justice, a liberator, defender, and protector. And in Latin, Jerome uses windex or V-I-N-D-E-X, but we say V-S-W, which is, means a justifiable one. So this bringer outer of right and justice, justice is a thing attributed to God. 
throughout the New Testament. This is not something human beings do. Mm-hmm. So if the minister of God is bearing this sword and sword is the word of God, we've got to keep this in mind. And then it pours right into verse five. Wherefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscious sake. And remember, the wrath is the damnatio that we saw earlier. That's something God dishes out, secular authorities. And then we kind of get the peak in here in verses six and seven, because this is where people think, oh no, we're talking about taxes again here. So it's got to be about the state and statism. So let's take a look at this. Verse six, for because of this, you also pay taxes for they are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Well, the word pay is questionable here. What you really mean by this Greek word, teleite, is what you offer, what you furnish, what you put forward, what you pay. This is a very generic word for any kind of a payment. This is not a government tax. In the translation to Latin, Jerome uses a plural word for this, tributum. It's tributa, which is, again, any old payment for anything. We're used to thinking of Roman tribute and stuff like that. But that's, again, these Latin and Greek words have multiple meanings depending on the context, especially if you're thinking about this in a spiritual way. So you're furnishing payment. I think what he's saying is, hey, support your minister. Mm-hmm. So just as you also make payments, for they are the servants of God, this minister, devoting themselves to this very thing in this. That's what really he's saying over here. And I even went further into the weeds on this, hoping I could really prove something cool about this, but it kind of didn't work out. But it is true that in this case, the word he uses for the payment in Greek, I think there's a word for that. The word for tax used here is foros, which means a load or an assessment. And that's the one that Jerome translated as tribute. I looked this up to see in a concordance of Greek words, what word was used in Matthew when they asked Jesus about, do you pay the tax? And they actually used a more specific word. It's called the kinsen and kinsu. This is very similar to the Latin word census in mm-hmm. Latin. This is an official payment. So he didn't use, St. Paul didn't use the one that they used on Christ in Matthew, which we know is about paying taxes. And the same one was used in Mark, the kinsen. And interestingly, Jerome translates all of these words as tributum. Again, Latin has even less words than Greek. So tributum's going to be there for a kensum tax or the forum's payment. But again, it doesn't work all the time. In Luke, we do see the word foros used, just as in Romans. So there's not a Loctite case here about this. So that root isn't going to make us anything. But it's nonetheless true that in Romans, Paul uses the less specific, less census-related word for us for the payment here. In my understanding, are you saying they use that same word in Luke, but in that context, you're pretty sure they really do mean tax, and so it's not an airtight case? They were using taxes in that word foros in Luke. And so I don't know if it's because Luke was a different kind of writer than Mark and Matthew. I mean, there's all these sources for the phrases mm-hmm. that were used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and this Q source, which I'm not going to get into, these old collections of phrases from which Matthew and Mark were constructed are carrying an old tradition. Luke was a different kind of book, and I don't know what the, you know, I'm not deep into the weeds on what his sources, collections he was using, but Mark, which is definitely the oldest of the Gospels in terms of the date of its construction, possibly by 20 or so years. They now know that these Gospels came into being possibly 50, 60 AD, something like that. But they're based on these collections of documents. But there is some possible wiggle room there, but it's not the slam dunk I'd hoped it would be. Mm. Can, so can I, just, let me just, can I just yeah. recapitulate the train of thought just to make sure to listen. So you're saying in Matthew and Mark, 
in passages where we clearly know what they're talking about is a payment of tax to political authorities. They use a specific word. Yeah, they use the word kinsin or like a sentence, mm-hmm. yeah. Whereas in Paul's letter here to the Romans, he uses a broader term that, yeah, it could mean paying tax tribute right. to the political, but it might not mean that. It's a broader term. And so that's interesting. He didn't use the more specific. But then you're acknowledging the weakness in your case. You're saying, but admittedly in Luke, they use the broader term when we're pretty sure in context, they really just mean payment of taxes to political authorities. Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to say, hey, I'm trying to be honest here. Right, right. No, I, I get it. Yeah. And so then verse seven kind of sums this up. And this is really good here. He goes, so render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, let's look at these a little bit more closely. The word render to all just means return to them what is owed. What is owed. There's no reason, there's no reason to call that a tax at all. The Greek word there is fo- is ophelos. And the word Jerome translates that is debita, debitum debita. It's a, the plural form of debitum. So he's clearly saying this is a this is like a, any debt you would pay. It doesn't even have to be translated taxes. So why did they go there? It's a shame. So he says, so render to all them what is owed. That's the first intro. Now, then we get into the word tax as tax. That's the one I might have just confused readers. I, I was only translating that first phrase, render to all what is due them, the debt. Then tax to whom tax. That one, again, is the word foron, which is the general term for a payment. And Jerome uses tributum there. So again, uses the general word foros there. So you don't have to call that a tax. Then the next one, custom to whom custom fear to whom fear. But all of it is appositional to the render what is owed. And your minister is someone you're supporting. And, and that's, I think, what Paul's saying here. We don't have to go all taxi on this kind of a thing and go to secular authorities. And so I'm thinking a pure translation of six and seven would be something like, therefore furnish payment. And you could even say contribution. Therefore furnish payment for they are ministers of God serving him in this. Therefore render to all whatever is owed. Payment to whom payment, revenue to whom revenue, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. That would be a much more conducive translation to what went on in Romans 12, especially knowing we're talking to souls, anima, psyche, psyche, their souls here, than all of this Caesary payment of taxes and stuff. And then the final phrase in verse eight just says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor Literally, the other has fulfilled the law, which is why I brought this up earlier. This is totally a Christian concept here, and it totally brings us back to Romans 12. So that's kind of what I wanted to say about this. Okay, great. So let me ask you just to clarify your position. Are you thinking where Paul says, for example, again, in the New American translation, For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes do, custom to custom. Are you saying you think actually he wasn't trying to be coy and it's just the modern translations are misleading? And if you looked at the original, it would be crystal clear to any Jewish reader, at least, that he wasn't talking about paying taxation to the political authorities, that he meant pay your tithes to your local church. Or was he being a little bit coy the same way Jesus was kind of being slippery because they were trying to grab him and trap him. And so he had to kind of wiggle out of that. And that's why he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, where it sounds like he's saying pay taxes. But if you don't think Caesar is owed it, then you wouldn't have to do it. Like he's, Jesus isn't saying pay your taxes. He's just saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And it's kind of open to interpretation. Actually, what did he just mean by that? So if Paul's saying pay tax to whom taxes do, if you think taxation is theft, then maybe you're going to say, well, no, I don't owe 
the government, any the you know political authorities, anything because that's theft, and I'm not supposed to steal. Yeah, or, you know, I can see one could take that approach if one thinks he's trying to be clever. But I actually don't think he was trying to be clever or crafty mm-hmm. at all. I think just as in Romans 12, he was saying, "Hey, here's your list of beatitudes mm-hmm. on how Christians treat each other and their fellow man." This is almost like a perfect summation. He's just saying, hey, therefore, all of you Christians amongst each other and with non-Christians out there and that aren't believers, therefore, furnish what is owed. Furnish your payments, first of all, to the ministers of God serving them in this, and then in general to everyone. Render to all whatever is owed in whatever you do. Payment to whom payment is due. That's the one they call taxes, but it's really payments. Just always render, don't be create a stink and don't live like a schmuck. Render to all whatever is owed. Payment to whom payment, revenue to revenue, fear to whom fear, honor to honor. This is how we behave as a continuation of 12. So when you think about all these things, he's addressing souls, anima, psyche. He's talking about higher authorities or higher powers, exousios, that are subliminous in Latin or sublime. And we're summing it up with just how to love one another. Again, I think this is totally addressed to the Christian community about Mm. their attitudes. And I don't know if he was being tricky or had to be tricky or not. I don't even think you have to go there if you read it in the context. Of okay, that's what I, I thought you were. I just wanted yeah. to address that possibility right. that, yeah, yeah. I didn't think you were claiming, but I want to clarify. Okay. Yeah, in case he brought that up too mm-hmm. as a possibility. Yeah, he was being crafty here. and mm-hmm. But yeah, you, you can go there, but you don't have to. Yeah. Okay, let me throw this possibility at you and have you respond. I could see, and I, I think actually this is what Sproul and others in that tradition would say, is say, okay, no, no, you, you guys are misunderstanding. Yeah, what we have classified as Romans 12 and then even at the tail end of Romans 13 where he kind of switches back to, yeah, love everybody, treat your neighbor as yourself, that kind of thing. You're right. He's saying to Christians in their capacity as private citizens that, yeah, somebody wrongs you. You absolutely do not vengeance yourself. You do not form vigil. You know, somebody kills your son. You don't round up your buddies and go grab the guy and hang him from a tree. You cannot do that. That's absolutely forbidden. God will take care of it. Vengeance is God's now, but there's also biblical precedent for sometimes God uses humans to execute his judgment. For example, in Jeremiah, God refers to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of ruler of Babylon, I don't know if he's called a king, is my servant. So clearly Nebuchadnezzar wasn't getting up every morning and praying to the God of Moses. That's not what was going on there. Just like God can use a tornado to do whatever he wants. He can use pagan, evil humans who happen to be in charge of states to do what he wants to. Like that's clearly what happens a lot in the Old Testament. Oh, I'm letting these people come in and conquer you because you're not following my commands. It's not that the conquering invaders are good followers of Abraham or something. You know, that's not what's going on there. So couldn't a plausible reconciliation of all this stuff be he said, yep, you as a Christian, your private life, you love everybody, you turn the other cheek, all that stuff. But if somebody really is rampaging around and breaking the law, God will take care of it working through humans bearing the sword, literally. So what would you say to something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think you could make an interpretation like that, that God can work through really anybody. I mean, somebody would say, yeah, the conversion of Constantine was somehow God working out his way to spread Christianity throughout the Mediterranean region. On the other hand, one could also turn to those phrases. I'm not sure if this isn't a gospel, but I think there's stuff like, if you've got a dispute with your neighbor, don't take him to court. Don't mm-hmm. use the secular authorities. Settle right. out your difference beforehand amongst yourself. And so I think the preference is to work it out yourselves before you go to court. And since we're talking about instruction here to Christians on how to interact with each other in the world, I think it's more like, hey, don't let these things escalate in there. Pay them yourselves, solve your disputes yourselves outside of the court system in the nice agorist world of Christians. Mm. So I'm thinking that's it. As far as using outside powers to accomplish deed, boy, that is one of the toughest challenges because I really, I don't even understand how things like 
God's interference in the world, real world is. And I know you talk about like the Harry Potter books and as an yeah, author, right. mm-hmm. you make it, I actually don't, I am so afraid to go there because I don't know how that works. Because if people follow like Augustine's approach to God and you say, well, God is operating outside of space time and is perceiving the world in what Augustine calls the eternal present, mm-hmm. where everything's unfolding simultaneously, not in unfolding through chronological time, which God supposedly doesn't experience. I mean, Augustine's already taking a leap as if he understands how God experiences anything. This is something we can't prove, but if you look at it that way, that God views things in the internal present and everything happens at once, I don't know if that means God's directing it or if because humans have agency or free choice that these things happen as they do. Maybe there's a nudge here or there. I don't know. And so maybe mm. that would tend to bolster the case that a secular ruler could act appropriately in a certain case. But boy, that's got to be one of the toughest challenges that mm. there are is what is predestination and what is it predestined? What is God's interference? What's the magisterium of the Catholic Church? All of these things are really like a big black box you open up. Yeah, well, I think there's at least two clear examples. Well, actually three. The one I just said where God is saying, my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, who right. I remember when I, heard, when I was younger reading, I was like, we need his right. servant. Nebuchadnezzar yeah. doesn't worship. But then also Joseph, when he confronts his brothers and says what you intended for evil, God used for good. Yeah. Like, so there's another clear example. And then even obviously the most crucifying Christ, it's not that everyone was like, hey, let's go get our salvation. And now let's go. it's, they were being jerks. <laughs> even in their own mind, they were mocking. Like, there's no reason to mock somebody. Even if they just thought, well, no, he's a criminal. We're going to follow the law. No, they were being horrible. Yeah, there is a case to be made for that. And that's an option. The other option would be, hey, Paul's just talking to his own and saying, this is how you should be in the world. Yeah, mm. it's, a, it's a tough question. It's just, but this whole conversation, it's wonderful. The point is, we don't have to be subject. We don't have to look at that unified explanation that is so common now. There's a whole other way to look at this. Mm-hmm. One last quick thing, and, and then I'll say it and let you respond. And then I, we got to wrap up because I got to get sure. I gotta get out of here. Because I also thought, too, okay, even on its own terms, like R.C. Sproul again saying, you as Christian, like, yeah, you have to pay your taxes. You can't just, oh, the, what are they, they're wasting my money on bridges and you know they should be able to cut costs 30%. I'm not paying this or whatever. That that's why, you know, you got to be subservient to the authorities unless they command you to do something that God forbids or they prohibit you from doing something that God commands. And, I, and so I want to say, okay, but with my worldview, it's not just that the government is spending too much on soup kitchens. And really, if they just shopped around better and got better contracts, they could save 13%. They're doing horrible, systematically evil things. And so arguably, I'm sinning by paying my taxes because I'm afraid of getting punished and I'm just selfishly putting my own welfare and like, well, no, I want to keep being able to go around and go out to nice restaurants and take trips and stuff rather than sitting in a cage. And that's why I'm basically paying for the warfare state because I'm putting my own needs above foreigners who are getting bombed by the U.S. military. And so like there's a sense in which I'm being selfish and blind and not really paying attention to what's going on and just minding my own business to keep my head down. So I guess my point is even on R.C. Sproul's interpretation, it's still kind of like, okay, in reality, then the U.S. government is doing so much stuff maybe the good Christian does need to not pay taxes because look at what they're doing with your money. Yeah. Yeah, that's a powerful case because, yeah, and as far as like Augustine and a lot of those people, when they got kind of cozy with government, because Augustine actually used and used political authorities to stamp out a certain heresy, I think it was the Donatist controversy. And Peter Brown, professor of medieval professor at UCLA, even pointed out that Augustine in the fifth, you know, early fifth century, started the idea of inquisition by using secular authorities, which is like the, a very early t- use of this. And I would say, yeah, there's there's corruption there. Once Christianity became legal, and church authorities had the convenience of co-opting government power, they were tempted by it and did it. And yeah, and your point here, yeah. If, if Paul's saying to pay these taxes to keep these horrific wars going and the child transitions paid for possibly by the government, 
that doesn't sound right either. Yeah, or like yes. a funding for Planned Parenthood or whatever, you know, the case may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that really does pose a challenge to the Sproul interpretation that that's what he's meaning because there's it's a sword that cuts two ways. So that, that again, that undercuts the idea that this should be interpreted in that way, just as so many of the other texts show the terrible problem of secular authority in spite of the fact that God has, in the scriptures we see, where God has actually used secular authorities. But yeah, I don't think anybody would be saying God was using uh, Victoria Newland when she was doing the coup in Ukraine or whatever it is that she was up to at the time, yeah. Okay, well, great, thanks. So folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 277. I'll put a bunch of links to other times I've talked on Romans 13 and you know, if Larry sends us some links maybe for online resources to bolster some of the stuff he was saying. So our guest has been Larry Ludlow. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, it was a pleasure to be here, Bob. And thanks everybody for tuning in and keep tuned in to get future interviews now that we're back in this circuit as well. Thanks everybody. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.